Hello and welcome back to another episode of After This. My name is Daniel. Um, I'm Carla. And I'm Shannon. And this week I wanted to go through a, uh, I don't know if you call it an article, it's more like an entry um, in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, um, which is about world government. It said it was the latest uh, re-edit of it was in 2014. I think it was originally written in like 2000. Um, but basically they've, you know, it's their, it's their standardized entry, I suppose, um, where they, you know, they can Ooh. consult things like this. Um, so what I wanted to do was deal with this in two parts. So over the two weeks, um, I'm going to have the part where they're talking about the main critiques at the beginning. And then mm -hmm. next week I'm going to talk about essentially the rest of the article. Um, yeah. so the rest of the piece talks about like a lot of other things it talks about like you know things that you could do to remedy some of these and things like that mm. so um what's yeah, the page a lot... called um the page is well, if you just google um the world government um stanford encyclopedia of philosophy it should cool. be the only thing that pops up um just, out of so that's for that. so just for our listeners you um you can go and look at this as well if you're curious um it's quite wordy um and it's not written in what I'd call super layman terms, but it's understandable. Cool. Anyway, so the first paragraph. What I will do is talk about the first one. So basically, he says these break down to three primary arguments that people have a tendency to make um, or are usually brought up. And so the first one, uh, I'll just read the paragraph and then we'll sort of just talk about it afterwards. So first, a realist argument. So actually, before I get started, realist in um, in political science terms means basically uh, nation states are going to act in you know their own interests and individuals are going to act in their own interests. That's what the realist school really means. Um, obviously, no one's going to call themselves the unrealistic school. So everyone <laughs> invents a name that makes themselves sound cool, but that's what that means. So first, a realist argument advanced by contemporary international realist theorists holds that world government is infeasible. Ideas of world government constitute exercises in utopian thinking and are utterly impracticable as a goal for human political organization. Assuming that world government would lead to desirable outcomes such as perpetual peace, realists are skeptical that world government will ever materialize as an institutional reality. Given the problems of egoistic or corrupted human nature or the logic of international anarchy that characterizes a world of states, all jealously guarding their own sovereignty as claims or claims to supreme authority. World government is thus infeasible as a solution to global problems because of the insurpassable difficulties of establishing authoritative hierarchies at the global or international level. This is by Krasner, 1999. Uh, a related consequentialist argument speculates that even if world government were desirable, the process of creating a world government may produce more harm than good. The necessary evils committed on the road to establishing the world government would outweigh whatever benefits might result from its achievement. Uh, this is a Rousseau argument. So mm. Rousseau was an old French philosopher who invented things like the social contract and all these other theories. <clears throat> but obviously this is... He was not alive in 1917, I didn't think. So. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the dates are kind of confusing. But basically... Um, so the two arguments really that they're presenting there is one, the Krasner argument, which is basically that it's never going to happen because it's too hard to establish mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. a, a, some kind of authority. And obviously that's a pretty weighty argument because it's pretty hard to establish. 
Um, and the second thing is that basically to get there, you might have to do a lot of bad stuff, but that's kind of a mm. might argument. Like the thing is, mm. um, the Rousseau argument seems to essentially be that to get to a world government, the process of doing it might destroy more than it helps, basically. Like, I think the theory so there is that... Kind of invasion, whether with, yeah. <laughs> whether with guns or with, like, a culture war or... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think the idea is that basically that someone has become some kind of super military overlord and has invaded everyone else and yeah. said, yay, peace, but they've killed everyone in the process. Yeah. That um, would be, yeah, negative. Um, so I think that's what that argument is. But obviously that's assuming that that's the only way to get it done. And maybe the thing is that the two arguments are sort of going together in the fact that no one's going to agree to it, so you'd have to take them over and take yeah. them is going to be its own bad thing. Um, obviously, I personally don't think it comes down to this simple kind of dichotomy of um, either you can do it with military or you can't do it at all. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that really holds um, true, especially with modern technology and the way things are changing. I think the opportunity to create these kinds of things is appearing. I definitely mm -hmm. understand the Krasner point, though, that basically it's a... Uh, it's a very big ask. Yeah. <laughs> I don't I mean, feel like there's of... any word I can come up with that's better than very big. <laughs> big ask. <laughs> I guess it's kind of analogous to uh, your point in the UN, how no one can get anything done because Russia and the US always veto each other and neither of them are ever going to agree for the other one to be in charge. So yeah, It's very true. And the thing is that it's like, you know, that, that um, human beings and their little countries and our tribes and our instinctual tribal way of thinking, we don't really want to let go of any of that sovereignty or control mm. or anything that someone else have control over us. Um, mm. No, go ahead. I was saying, and I guess the option would be to just have a completely separate government. So rather than saying the US is in charge, we say, oh, well, everyone in the world votes on this new um institution that is the world government yeah. but then it's like yeah. so does every person get one vote or does every nation get a set number of votes because if it's just per person then it will just be what is it india at the moment has the highest population china has the highest population china, it would just be china gets in charge so that's yeah. no yeah. one's gonna like that idea <laughs> on the other well, hand the, you probably shouldn't have single voting block yeah but you probably shouldn't have however many do you know the population of china ballpark I thought it was 1.6 billion. 1.6 billion people having the same number of votes as, you know, Lithuania with... Yeah. What, yeah, like yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, <laughs> I'm not sure whether you create, like, a weighted system sort of the same way that, like, the American state system works, where they have different weights for different places based on population and stuff, but they mediate it... They slightly mediate it, though, to mm. stop it being... Um, you know, that, the, the, that California basically just gets to tell everyone else what to do because California is obviously the most populous and um, has the most money and everything else. So it's like, do they get to tell the rest of the country what to do? And obviously they, they implement systems where California has the biggest say, but it's moderated so that countries, so that states like Nebraska and things that are much smaller still have a say. Um, I don't know. I really don't know though what the answer to the voting system would be. The thing is ultimately... Um, I think what would happen over time, though, is, as is the case with any federation, that slowly individual state identities kind of blend in with the federal one. 
And you can see the same thing in America, in Germany, in Australia, in mm. Russia. It's like they're all federations. But the thing is that slowly over time, ever since they became a state, there's kind of this thing where it's like, yeah, I'm from here, but I'm really this. Mm. Like I- yeah, I'm from this area, but yeah. I think the slow speed really doesn't completely nullify the argument, but it certainly, mm. if you're thinking about a timeline of centuries rather than decades, it makes mm. it a bit easier. Yeah, I mean, even like even a couple like a couple of generations, like maybe fifty years or something, I think is long enough for two generations of people to kind of grow up in this new community mm. and to kind of see it as different, like to to sort of be so identify as global. I mean, you see it with um, Vault, for instance, the Vault Party, who I've talked to a fair bit actually. Um, the people in Vault, which is like the uh, EU political party that's basically an eu party but they run in all the local elections sort of thing as well so the thing is that they're they coordinate across all of europe and there's a lot of young people in it because they've grown Mm. up in the eu and they're like Mm. this is great we love this why would we split this up Mm. and um and so they're all very like they they create eu parties and i think a similar thing would happen where like the, the existing political parties you'd slowly start to see them dissolve and replaced with like intentionally um, universalist parties, I mm. suppose you call them. Like they'd pop up and go, yeah, well, we're intentionally going to work with everyone else and do all this stuff. But I think the fundamental argument that basically we shouldn't do it because it's hard is a bad argument. <laughs> I think, I think, I think if the reason you're not doing something is because it's a bad thing to do, then that's fair enough. But the thing is, I think if you're not doing something purely because it's difficult or you don't think that it's going to happen, um, I think that's more just, that's not really thinking ethically. That's just being an yeah. opportunist. Mm-hmm. Like you're just, you're just taking opportunities when they're easy rather than choosing the thing that's actually worth trying to accomplish, even if it's the biggest, most yeah. hardest thing well, you can think of. It's often too hard to see how something's going to turn out before you've even implemented the first things that you can actually do now. Mm. which is pretty much like that is just like start making these small parties that can actually you know work their way into influence over the yeah. next 10 to mm. 15 20 years and then i have a devil's advocate argument you shouldn't um you shouldn't not jump off a bit oh, sorry that's like saying you should you should jump off a building because you might be able to fly. Right. Okay, like the fact yeah. that flying is too hard is not a good reason to not jump off a building. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the, the devil's advocate argument there is that yeah. the, the downsides of trying, the, there is yes. a downside to trying. Yes. Uh, um, I, guess, I guess the downside to trying would basically be if it diverts you too much from actual problems that we actually have. Um, yeah, I think that's... Yeah, yeah, it's basically, yeah, if you're committing so hard that you're going to do it at all costs, then you're, yeah, then you could run into something worse, basically. Um, I think that's the thing is, and that's where it bounces off the other argument, that as hard as it is, the answer isn't going to be to dominate and destroy everything else because it's just going to cause problems. The thing is, obvious problems. (laughs) The thing is, (laughs) like... The thing is, it's it's a I I just don't see those as legitimate reasons not to do it. It's just that it's very fair enough that they're going to be very hard, 
and not to fall into the trap of thinking that military force or you know just saying fuck it i'm impatient let's just destroy everything it's like it's a good answer like it's just obviously that's completely incorrect and i think Um, attitude is completely at odds with like most of the people who are pushing for a world unification are not going to be the same type of people who think that invasion is a good plan (laughs) military invasion. yeah no i mean all the people that i know if anything, the problem that the movement has is it, it's mostly very pacifisty people that don't really want to cause any controversy. Yeah. Um, and the problem is that that means that no one ever notices they exist. <laughs> <laughs> because they don't want to say anything that could be misinterpreted because they don't want to be labelled that way. And the problem yeah. that it's sort of creating, and we're sort of having debates about it, is that like just own the terms that we're trying to use because... The thing is, you need to be noticed. And if you're not even noticed, like you're just going to spend another couple of decades, like the last few decades of the movement of just being completely ignored. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so yeah. yeah, no, trust me, that is not a major issue. The people that are, I know <laughs> that are all in this are not like, let's take over anything. I think they're like the opposite of that to a, to a, to like a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's sort of, yeah, it's sort of the first argument, which is basically that it's hard, which isn't an argument. It's just a reason why it's hard. Um, and don't do it militaristically or don't do it in a way that's going to harm the people that you're sort of um, trying to unify. And obviously, yeah, that, I agree with that as well. There's a, there's a lot of people who have made the argument over history that you should just cop it because the long-term benefits outweigh it. But mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't think so. I, yeah. Yeah. The thing is it's such a it's such a broad question, isn't it? So like it's I'm gonna incline towards no. Um <laughs> so the second point that they had, which was oh, sorry, I'll just read the whole thing again. Um so second, even if world government were shown to be a feasible political project, it may be an undesirable one. One set of reasons for its undesirability emphasizes the potential power and oppressiveness of a global political authority. In one version of this objection, the tyranny argument, world government would descend into a global tyranny, hindering rather than enhancing the ideal of human autonomy. This is by Kant in 1991. Instead of delivering impartial global justice and peace, a world government may form an inescapable tyranny that would have the power to make humanity serve its own interests, an opposition against which might engender incessant and intractable civil wars. Mm -hmm. Waltz, 1979. In another version of this objection, the homogeneity argument, world government may be so strong and pervasive as to create a homogenizing effect, obliterating distinct cultures and communities that are intrinsically valuable. The institution of a world government would thus destroy the rich social pluralism that animates human life. Waltz, 2004. While the preceding two arguments stem from fear of the potential power of world government, another set of concerns that makes world government undesirable focuses on its potential weakness as a form of political organization. The objections on this account are the are that the inevitable remoteness of a global political authority would dilute the laws, making them ineffectual or meaningless. The posited weakness of world government thus leads to objections based on its potential inefficiency and soullessness from Kant 1991. So this is really where the meat of the counter argument is that I always hear that basically this is the main point that actually sort of holds weight with people um, is the threat that basically, and they're all sort of saying the same thing in the first parts that 
it's just it, it could so easily potentially just flip on a dime and become a tyrannical power mm. um, instead of being a power that benefits people. So yeah. in terms of it being like a tyranny, tyranny, that's correct. Like the thing is, it could having an authority, having an institutional structure in place that's over the planet could very easily become a global tyranny, like with the very perfect circumstances that it require to get there. Mm. Um, but to that point, there's a few things that aren't quite the same between a world government environment and a normal government environment. I mean, mm. the first thing, and I talk about this quite a lot um, online and in our podcast, I'm pretty sure, um, that basically... A lot of states clamp down and become really, I don't know what the word is besides Nazi-ish, <laughs> like <laughs> when they're surrounded by other countries that they're afraid of. Like the thing uh, is, yep. fear at a state level guides a lot of those decisions a lot of the time. So the thing is, like the reason that Stalin became so bad was when the Nazis invaded, so, invaded Russia. Um, because he wasn't great to begin with, but he became about a thousand times worse when the Nazis invaded Russia and he had to turn the entire country into like this, like, I don't know, to repel the German invasion. He basically mobilized the entire population and he had virtually nothing to work with except manpower. So it was basically, we need to stop them from destroying Russia. So we're just going to throw all of our people at it and become really inhumane. And it's like, it's this kind of, it's this kind of arithmetic that only takes place really in a nation-state world where a big power is going to attack your big power and then you have to do some crazy shit to make it make sense and to repel mm. them. Whereas in a world where you have one power that can't possibly be under threat, the mm. thing is, like from another conventional power anyway, um, you, it's just I can't, I can't see the same logic holding. I mean, you think of every single instance where people like were turned into a, a country was turned into a tyranny. There's always something that was just as big as them or bigger that they were afraid of that sort of drove those decisions. Mm. And the thing is, it's there's actually um, no real precedent because there's no point where a country has been all powerful and done it themselves mm. like i mean you look at uh, rome for mm. instance right because rome dominated the entire old world but really it was just a republic for a really long time eventually it descended into an empire but i'm I, I need to learn the history around this enough about what drove that though um because obviously it's a very different time because they had different mm. communication technologies and everything else so I probably, yeah, I, I don't know enough to actually bring that example up. So I'm going to retract that entire statement. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see what you're saying, though. But I mean, you've had, like the US did a lot of power consolidation in the name of terrorism after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that's without a, an external power to a certain extent. It's not another nation. Mm. Um, and America, there's... though, does have a deathly fear of the other countries that uh, were coming up like China sure, and a recovering yeah. Russia and losing trade to India and all these things. Like everyone's on a defensive footing all the time on a national level. So like, if you yeah. look at international relations, everything is, everyone is terrified of everyone else because someone else might get something that they don't and might get a leg up and then they won't have an advantage anymore. There's yeah. this sort of like uh, law of the jungle thing going constantly 
on the global level, even if everything looks totally peaceful and most of these battles are legal, the thing is countries are constantly pushing each other out of the way to get, you know, trade and, you know, favorable laws and resources and all these kinds of things. Um, so, like, again, it's a difficult thing because you can't really compare it to what countries have done because I don't think a country's ever been in a position where it's been so powerful that it's sort of... Um, uh, you know, been something that you can equivocate to. I have absolutely no threats. I'm completely fine. Mm. Um, because every country that I can think of has had that problem um, because obviously they're countries. Um, just a quick question. Is this um, global government assuming like a United Nations sort of a thing where it's just unifying nations that already are or is it assuming like surrender? Well, that's, I mean, that's the president thing. and whatnot to this government. Well, I mean, that's sort of like not really made clear. And I think the thing is, some of the arguments make it sound like they're imagining something different to what a lot of other people are imagining. Mm. Um, because it's sort of like you're just absorbed and gone, like rather than still being a state, you just have an extra level of governance, essentially. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, honestly, in this instance. It, it's not really made clear, and it's almost to the hindrance of the argument that they're not really saying specifically what they're talking about. The thing is, the global, the global tyranny thing as well is, like, it's still a legitimate threat, though, even because yeah. you've still got the structures in place. It's just that I don't think the mental arithmetic that sort of goes into what we're used to is going to be at play in the same way um, because <laughs> there's just not going to be the same kinds of threats. But it is very important, I think, that you would add massive anti-corruption support. Mm. Um, mm. Like, it would have to be enormous amounts of, like, transparency. Because what I almost imagine from hearing this is almost like it being a banking system and an economic sort of control sort of governance system what do you mean um well for this government to or like global government to sort of come into play it almost needs like a proper banking and, and like economic control sort of thing to be able to control all these nations because otherwise mm -hmm. for it to be a tyranny you would have to amass some sort of army but where would it do that Hmm. But well, I, think, I think the general argument is that you wouldn't have armies anymore. You would just have a security force. And obviously yeah, the thing yeah. is, in theory, you could use that security force to become a tyranny. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's, I think it's, it's more about the culture, right? The thing is, if we, if we end up with like a unitary state where basically everything answers to one central location rather than having a strata of power, which is what you're meant to have in a federation... Um, you could end up with this kind of thing more easily because every every decision comes to one tiny little isolated place and they could just start mm -hmm. deciding to make things really bad. Um, but the thing is, by having federal entities, it's the same way that it works in like the US. Like The only way you would end up with some kind of tyranny is if most people were voting for it. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. like That's the problem they have in America at the moment is that people keep voting for horrible shit. But really, the thing is, you'd have to have most of the most of the world voting for horrible shit for it to ever happen in those kinds of systems. Because otherwise, 
as soon as the, as soon as the government decides something and most of the people vote against it, the next election they're all gone and replaced with someone else. Like as much as we hate the Republicans, they keep getting voted in to do these horrible things. Like that's why they keep getting in. It's because like huge numbers of Americans keep voting for them and saying, yes, we want you to do those things. Um, so in terms of creating like a 1984 Orwellian style monster state, it just doesn't seem possible. Like you'd have to have everyone comply with the whole thing. And in democratic systems, there's no precedent for that. There's just, it just doesn't really happen. Like people seem to think that all the police and all the armies and all the everything are just going to just decide, yeah, no, I'm fine with that, and then go along with it. But really what you end up with is the actual history of Western development, which is a lot of cops and soldiers and stuff saying, I don't want to do that. I think that's mm. bad. I think that breaks the law or Snowden's or whatever it is. <clears throat> How long has modern democracy been around? I'm um, trying to think. Really America, the American... When America did it, it was... 1776 kind of was, was when it? they um, bumped out. So we've had 200 years. I don't know if yeah. that's necessarily given it enough time to go wrong. Like there could be yeah. a natural evolution of democracy that does go in that direction as well. We just haven't seen it yet. The other thing is you'd have constitutional protections against these kinds of things. So then you have mm. like the Supreme Court basically saying, well, no, we can't do that because it literally says mm. rule two in the, in the Constitution says <laughs> cannot become this thing. Like, and they define that somehow. Like, mm. it has to remain this with these accountabilities and these mm. sorts of things, and that can't be changed because you'd need to have those rules put in. And the thing is, again, countries only change that stuff. Even Hitler, like, had to go and beg to be made chancellor, and mm. he had to get Hindenburg to agree. Like, we all have this 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 narrative in our heads that, like, he just turned up and said, nah, fuck everything and destroyed everything, which he kind of did. <laughs> but the thing is, at the same time, he had to, like, beg and campaign and everything to get voted in in the first place and then become made chancellor and all these other things. And then he had to have most of the country be completely okay with, like, you know, genocide. It's <laughs> like, you know, it's like there's there's so many things that require people to agree to them. And the thing is, I think... With a system of agreeance alongside a system like like a democratic system, alongside like constitutionally mandated anti-corruption measures, I don't mm. think this is so significant a concern that it should stop us going ahead. I think it's, it's not impossible, but it's incredibly unlikely if you have all of those things. I mm. think put together. I think the the other side of the coin of that is the inefficiency argument. So if you're saying basically the more the more power the leader has, the easier it is to get stuff done. And that's mm. good stuff as well as bad stuff. And yeah. having you would need to have a lot of checks and balances and that would make it hard to get anything done. Mm. Um, and I I think I've I've definitely said this point before that we'd we'd need to get much more skilled in our bureaucracy and administration um, yeah. which i don't think is impossible i don't think we've hit the ceiling on the possibilities of the efficient of organization well, yeah. yeah well what i take from that is like it just seems like throughout human history that there's some sort of mass hysteria that allows almost like a supreme evil to get these to get the majority to go a certain direction mm. yeah, it's yeah. Almost, almost always fear yeah, there's almost like the focus should be on 
getting rid of that mass hysteria in order for these natural evolutions of good coming through to actually have an effect. I, if I everyone's think... stuck in that fear state. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely they are. I think, um, I think the counter-argument really is I actually would argue we're sort of already going towards that in our current system as well. Mm. I think what we have instead is sort of uncontrolled uh, transnational wealth instead, where basically because countries have less and less ability to kind of influence that, uh, you know, the economy globally, because people, you know, whenever they have money can just jump up shop and move somewhere else. They can do whatever they want, deregulating countries. Like the thing is more and more, the total asset count for humanity is shifting into the highest brackets of wealth. And what we're kind of ending up with is a kind of uh, plutocracy anyway, because mm -hmm. plutocracy is basically ruled by the wealthy. So yeah. we're kind of ending up with a global plutocracy where, you know, plutocrats are sort of able to do whatever they want on their terms. They can decide to, you know, create a giant corporation here or a giant company there or move mm. their money here or move their money there. And that's sort of becoming the world government in a sense. Mm. Like they're kind of able to dictate and do whatever they want. Um, so and having, and having enough money to um, control the media means you can pretty easily control the masses as well. Yeah. And the thing is that I think we're because you see the numbers of like total asset count for the world and how like over the, I think it's the last 40 years, it's gone up like 30% or something mm -hmm. in terms of like how much is owned by the top 10% or top 1%. Mm. I need to look at the number again, but it's definitely shifting towards that end. And really we're kind of ending up in this system where individual people have less and less control over their own lives and <laughs> there's less and less structure and less and less organization and it's all being done sort of in the name of this right-wing conservative freedom. But what we're ending up with is a kind of a global uh, lack of control unless you have money. And then mm. the thing is, what, what we're creating then is a power structure of wealth. Mm. And wealth isn't accountable to anything because the thing is, there's no constitution for wealth. There's no Congress mm. for wealth. There's no anything for wealth. So in our desperate attempt to run away from global tyranny, we've run straight into a different one that <laughs> basically is absolute freedom, but not really because it's absolute mm. freedom for money. And the thing is, so it means you get to do whatever you want if you have money. If you don't it's, have money, what... you don't get to play yeah. in that club. Another word for freedom that has negative connotations is anarchy that's they're the yeah. same thing it's yeah. just whether you're looking at the positives or the negatives and over time as tax revenue and everything else drops more and more because like they're able to deal with these companies and individuals less and less anarchy becomes more and more the case and mm. life gets worse for regular people and uh, it's just it's almost like a world it's like a world tyranny where you buy your seat that's basically mm. created instead, and it's just becoming more and more the case. But we still don't think about it at all. We think about 1984, the big government. That's what we're scared of. So instead, no, no, it's fine. I'm, I'm cool going to this one, <laughs> this, this one that we've already created, um, which is a power structure all on its own with no accountability, because I'm deathly afraid of a power structure with no accountability. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like the concept of compassionate anarchy. Compassionate anarchy. Well, how does that work? 
well it's like do what you want but be compassionate about it so yeah well that would that, be amazing it's a big cultural change i, I would yeah. love that yeah. you just need to convince um you know news corp to agree <laughs> <laughs> and i think if you make everyone feel safe that becomes a lot easier like yeah if again if people are you know having their needs met they're much less likely to want to take something away from somebody else yeah, yeah. i just i just haven't found the way to uh take on news court Let's... compassionately yet <laughs> <laughs> although as, as that was coming that out of my mouth <laughs> <laughs> yeah therefore therefore it's hard to perform compassion towards them you know so <laughs> yeah. as an entity anyway yeah, I, I got halfway through that sentence and I was like, no, hang on a minute. What about all the billionaires who say they can't afford to pay their workers more than minimum wage? That's not true at all. <laughs> I, I, think I really need to kind of write down this this point that I'm making actually somewhere because I don't think I, I've said it a few times, but I think I need to word it, like phrase it out properly because it's yeah. a, it's basically we're so afraid of this crazy scenario that we've kind of created it in another form. We're so um, afraid of government having too much power that we've given them too little power. And then we've, the thing is that people think that power exists in a vacuum, right? Mm -hmm. that, that basically you've either given the government power or you've taken it away from the government and given it to yourself. But really, there's a, it's a triangle, not a line. You've basically got the government, you've got wealth, and you've got yourself. Mm -hmm. And basically, when it goes away from the government, but you don't specifically make it so that it goes towards you by devaluing currency or something then it's going to go to wealth and then it'll go to you maybe if you do some extra stuff. But default, taking it away from the government just gives power to where whoever else has control. Mm. And the next stage of control is business and wealth. Um, and yeah, so it's, it's, I don't see that again as a valid argument. I think there's ways around it. I think there's a lot of circumstances that would change. Um, I think there is a concern, but I think at the same time, we've gone the other way and already cre already started creating another problem that's just as bad. Mm. Um, so juxtaposing that with this, I, I don't think it's like this massive, ah, but this kind of argument. Um, so the next point by Waltz was that it might engender incessant and intractable civil wars because mm. countries will continue to be like, no, no, hold on, we don't want to do whatever the tyranny thing is doing. Now, there is some legitimacy to this because the thing is you might end up with, say, China and India, as much as they never seem to agree on anything, um, it's basically saying we both want this and then you've got a pretty solid majority. Well, not a majority, mm. but you've got 2.6 billion people out of the six. Yeah. Um, so you've got a chunk, definitely. Um, it's kind of like the Catholic Church voting for something in America. That's about mm. the same amount of proportion. Um, so you've got a big chunk, but it's not necessarily going to sway the whole country. Um, but basically, they're voting for something that no one else wants. Um, now, the problem is that I don't think I don't think you'd have intractable civil wars unless the thing they're voting for is like horrendous. But then <laughs> it wouldn't be votable if it was against the mm. constitution. This is the I same thing in America. <clears throat> I think it'd be more likely to be kind of ground roots groups rather than nations. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. You have like insurgencies, basically. Yeah, I think that's um, more likely and yeah. very difficult to stop. And I would absolutely believe that in the early periods of some kind of government like this, you're going to have insurgencies. Like mm. it's, it's absolutely going to happen because 
the fundamental method of the fundamental thing of the world's changed and power structures have changed and the thing is people are going to be put out there's going to be people who aren't happy with it but fundamentally the thing is if you're balancing the society not towards the wealthy but towards helping people in general you're probably going to minimize the amount of frustration and difficulty a lot of people are having and mm. I think the kind of people that would be most likely to be insurgents would be first world working class people who now have to who now have to be like the rest of society and they're not mm. better than anyone anymore and they're frustrated and angry and demasculated, <laughs> um, i.e. far right terrorists. Um, I think that would be the major problem that you would have in this, not the third world. I think the third world would be overjoyed to be part of a bigger, wealthier um economic unit because that's Where what they're always treated fairly they're always arguing for it they're trying like the african union for instance is constantly trying to get set up properly so they can kind of have an equal grounding with mm. the west um and this is basically just give it to them you know like it, i don't think that would be where the problem would be although you might have like religious extremists again who think that this mm. is the coming of the antichrist so you know it's really yeah i think it'd be cultural be like that mm. yeah but I, I think the biggest problems you would have is in the west that wants to dominate everything, but they're told you're not allowed to anymore. You're just now people. Mm. <laughs> and that's frustrating. Um, so then there's the homogeneity argument, um, which was um, Waltz of 2004. This is a good point, a very good point, actually, because I think the thing is, um, and the concern is that essentially you're going to have a global power structure, a global entity that's going to sort of wipe out all the subcultures of earth um yeah i think to a certain extent that is happening and will happen regardless of the governmental structures across yes. the world <laughs> like i i i completely agree. I agree that it's definitely a bad thing but i think it is i mean not necessarily yeah i think all cultures have kind of good and bad things and in the utopia you keep the good and you chuck the bad but yeah, yeah I, see, I think... i'd be interested to see how much that actually happens like, it's really, it's sad to think that, like, languages and cultures and stuff will be disappearing. But the thing is, that's just the nature of modern technology and everything. It's just, I mean, every country that you look at, every, like, every America and England and, and Germany and France and China and everything else is actually the graveyard of probably millions of subcultures already, right? The thing is, they've all only became what they are because they probably cleaned out a whole bunch of stuff that was there in the first place. Like mm. when the original, original stuff. So let's say uh, Iraqi culture, for instance, because that's where the two first cities on Earth were, which is mm -hmm. um, Ur and something else. It's UR and something else, Uruk or something. But basically there's two cities that are sort of broadly thought of as the first two cities that ever existed, with like mm -hmm. towns. Um, whatever culture was in Ur and Thingo is gone. Like... Mm. <laughs> It, it is completely gone. The thing is, we, we, we maintain records and remember these things. But the thing is, every single culture that exists has like amalgamated and endlessly combined every culture mm. that was making it up in the first place. And um, yeah, and America is the same because obviously all the states had their own kind of unique populations and cultures and things. And they've all slowly just been wiped out and been made American. Um, and that's on top of the, you know, indigenous cultures. Of course. That um, yeah, yeah. both America and Australia and Canada did a pretty good job of wiping out. Yes, they absolutely did. <laughs> they, um, I think, 
yeah i i completely agree i think this is something that just happens anyway and i think it's mm -hmm. part of um cultural evolution is that yeah. basically you take bits and you evolve and like you get little bits of food and artistry and habits and cultures and traditions and they sort of mishmash and mishmash endlessly into these new things that just continuously evolve um so yeah i think what you'd end up with is it's not that this entity is going to sort of be the end of cultural change either. Like, I think that's kind of a really crazy misnomer. I think you have a solid political entity, but then people will grow up in this new political entity and create new subcultures. Like, that's just what happens. Like, you'll have a group of people who are like, I don't like the general thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. People are still mm. people. Like, you don't... Having a unified government doesn't make everyone a robot. Like <laughs> and that seems to be the general way people think. It's like you're gonna take everything over and make everything the same. It's like that's not how it works. Mm. Like people will do things that other people do because they like it, but then they'll go and do their own thing because they like that. Like it's it culture will keep evolving. Mm. We'll just have a single political structure. And so again, got... yeah. you you definitely have to like look into funding like minority cultures and making sure that they're gonna be protected and. Mm. No, I think what you'd have is you'd have big like heritage foundations and things that would be like, you know, maintaining records and and imagery and every da data on everything that existed, mm. so we can have we can maintain a history of everything that sort of came into what we have. Mm. That's sort of what you'd be doing. Our information gathering and storage is so strong right now that unless something happens to ruin it, which is not impossible, but unless something happens to ruin it, we should kind of from here on forwards have pretty good records of everything. Yeah. So as long as we try to keep people thinking that history and culture is important, mm. then it will stick around yeah. to a certain extent. I mean, you know, you can't capture everything, but yeah. you get pretty close in modern society. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. I definitely agree with that. Um, yeah, so again, I don't, I don't think this is a, a big reason to not do it. I think even together, these reasons aren't a good, re that I've discussed so far, are to, a good reason to avoid it completely. I think it's just, these are concerns and they're things that you need to plan around and you need hmm. to take into account, but I don't think they're anything that should really stop it. Um, so the last point, uh, was the, no, so not the third point, I'm talking about the last point of the second thing, which point is about two. the tyrannies. Um, uh, so, which was the uh, point by Kant that basically the, um, the 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 government would be so remote, essentially, that its laws would have to be really general or like they'd just be detached from anything that's going on in the locality. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't think that holds much merit unless you're creating a China-style unitary state. Um, if you're creating a federation, then it's sort of the same way that things work in Australia now, where like the federal the federal entity may make laws about the economy on a broad scale, but then the states within that, you know, like Victoria or Queensland or whatever, are going to do things that make sense for their area or their mm -hmm. things. Like it's about stratifying power and you know decision making. Um, so it's not all just coming from one spot. It's not an insoluble problem. Yeah. I think, again, it'll take uh, improvements to our administration skills. Because, mm. yeah. like, we've got the communication to do it. Like, anyone, as we're finding out very quickly right now, anyone in the world can talk to anyone else in the world. Mm. Like, with a snap of a finger. Like, that's... Yeah. 
that's one. And I think it's probably one of the more simplistic and less accurate reasons, but it's one of the things that people talk about with the fall of Rome, that they just didn't mm. have the communication channels to be spread out that far. Mm. Um, and we do now. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is if you're in, you know, if you're in Rome itself and you wanted to issue a directive for what you wanted them to do in London or something, the problem is you couldn't tell them for ages. Like it would take a really long time for the to the information to get there. Mm. And so by the time it got there, it might be outdated anyway. So what they'd end up with is sort of like local powers that were almost completely autonomous mm. because that's the only way to functionally do things. And then naturally that's going to fall apart. Mm. Um because it's just they'll just start thinking for themselves too much, and then <laughs> the is, then you have no cohesion whatsoever. It's just yeah. it's going to go that way. Becomes uh, chaotic. Yeah. No. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think that's something you could easily overcome now um, with modern technology and bureaucracy. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, I don't really think again that's a major thing now. If you did a federation. I don't think this would work. I think a lot of these arguments would be very correct if you went for a unitary state, but a federation, obviously, yeah. it's, you know, and the, re the reference for that quote is 91, so that's before the internet became a huge thing. Mm. It had I mean, a, been a lot of this, a lot of this is um, early, like mm. in the 90s or 80s or 70s. And the world has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, you think about it now, like, you got kids in, like, my, my, Malaysia and Thailand and America and everything else that are all growing up playing Minecraft and stuff like that. Like, there's this common identity that's already kind of forming, mm. like, that you see already coming into play that people, you know, and like, you grew up in the Philippines and they, they saw the same movies as you did when they were a kid and stuff like mm. that. Like, there's a, there's a common experience that's sort of working its way in because of communication technology. Um, mm. where like there's less and less that's different about our youths than there used to be. Like there's yeah. still stuff that's different and different levels of poverty, different languages, different foods, different cultures, whatever. But there's a lot of stuff that's becoming similar. You know, yeah. I'm sure there's like you know you talk to kids like oh I grew up in Taiwan and I grew I played Dota my entire youth or something. It's like I grew up a Dota addict or you know something like that. <laughs> <laughs> like what used to be a hundred years ago, or fifty years ago, or even thirty years ago that you know youth was such a very life in general was such a varied thing now more and more because of technology there's all these links um that didn't used to be there um yeah and no, i just find that interesting that i can talk to people about stuff and we have a common experience now um so the last one which is the third point which was third Contemporary liberal theorists argue mainly that world government... So, oh, I'm going to have to stop here for a second. Liberal theorists means right-wing. Um, because we often use the term liberal for left. Liberal con conventionally means, like, life. So, it means, like, do whatever you want. That's where it originally came from. Uh, Back yeah, in yeah. the day when the Catholic Church and all that sort of stuff was telling you to do everything. Um, the liberals are the people basically saying we should be allowed to do what we want. Um, so that's what that term actually means. So third, contemporary liberal theorists argue mainly that world government in the form of a global leviathan with supreme legislative, executive, adjudicative and enforcement powers is largely unnecessary to solve problems such as war, global poverty and environmental catastrophe. World government so conceived is neither necessary nor sufficient to achieve the aims of a liberal agenda. Even cosmopolitan liberals do not argue that moral cosmopolitanism necessarily entails political cosmopolitanism in the form of world government. 
The liberal rejection of world government, however, does not amount to an endorsement of the conventional system of sovereign states or the contemporary international order with its extreme injustices, crippling poverty and inequalities. This is by Rawls in 1999. Instead, most liberal theorists envision the need for authoritative international and global institutions that modify significantly the powers and prerogatives traditionally attributed to the nation state. So basically... The argument that they're making is that you don't need it to solve these problems, mm. um, which obviously, yeah, you don't need it. But as we've seen in the uh, 21, 21 years since this was written in 1999, we don't seem to be able to fix these problems. <laughs> so it's may, I, I think the argument basically is you don't need it to do it. Um, but I think we've sort of proven to ourselves for a while that it's so incredibly difficult with this kind of split power yeah. base that we just don't do anything. It certainly seems like it would help a lot. Yeah. You know, I, in those specific problems. Yeah. I think that's the thing is people basically say, look, we don't need to go that far. We can solve our problems without it. But as we've seen with global warming and poverty and all these other things, we have a tendency to not uh, <laughs> fix our problems with these, with these kinds of systems. So I don't really see that as legitimate. I think, if anything, we if we had a world government, we probably would have fixed at least some of those things by now. Yeah, um, I mean, I know global poverty, like it, it kind of seems like it's rising, but it, if you look at the numbers, it is actually falling, oh, absolutely. broadly speaking. So yeah. the problem know. that's happening with with poverty, particularly, is that the developing world is improving but the developed world is going down. Yeah, so what yeah. you kind of have is an equilibrium that's going to be set that's somewhere between the developing world and the developed world where market is happy because this is mm. how much you should earn based on market algorithms, basically. And it's going to be somewhere that no one's happy with. Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, you get, then you get the top. One percent yeah. with everything, and um, this is and this is again the problem I was talking hmm. about. Where we've created a system of power of wealth. Yeah, we haven't avoided a system of power. We've just created a different one where basically the market right. gets to dictate what happens to our wages. And if you've got a perfect whole world production system, then we're all going to be roughly equal, and it's going to be wherever the market thinks our labor should be set, which is going to be lower than it is now because that's why it's dropping otherwise it wouldn't be dropping yeah uh, i mean inequality inequality is what's on the rise so you've yes. got a couple of a couple of people who were very happy with their material uh situation and yep. everyone else not so much yeah no absolutely so i think and so so the other point was even cosmopolitan liberals do not argue that moral cosmopolitanism necessarily entails political cosmopolitanism so basically Right-wing people who think that we should be big and mixed and have lots of open borders and trade deals don't think we should have political systems that match those systems. Mm -hmm. But that's because they generally want, you know, wealth to be that way, but not people. So, yeah, the wealthy have more power, the weaker government is. So. <laughs> I, exactly. And the thing is, I'm reading a book called The Globalists at the moment, which is basically about the origins of the movement and where it's split up from and how it all sort of started with a bunch of neoliberals, which were basically, uh, neoconservatives, sorry, which are basically like, we want free trade with everything and minimise the amount of effect that governments can have on us. And that's mm. where it started. Um, before it split into lots of different things. Yeah, it was like 1910 around mm. there, like eight, the early 1900s. Um, okay, the, so they probably this... hadn't 
a lot of this started. So, um, yeah, they that's how they envision it, and I think that's where the two worldviews come from. Um, well, assuming justice could uphold inequality. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think that um, this is a strong argument. <laughs> I think we've kind of proven to ourselves we're not very good at solving a lot of these. Um, you, like I said, the prov- the poverty thing. And mortality rates and everything are all absolutely improving in the developing world. But the end result of where we're going to end up after they all settle somewhere yeah, it, is going it, to be somewhere we don't want. Great, yeah. Because as with any plutocracy, it's kind of like you're either in the club or you're not. And if you're not, you are whatever they want you to be. And that is basically unaccountable power. Um, the market is whatever the you know the people with the money dictated is basically mm. um because they drive the market it's based on funds um and then and then the ending point which is instead most liberal theorists envision the need for authoritative international and global institutions that modify significantly the powers and prerogatives traditionally attributed to the nation state so basically they're saying instead of world government we should have world government i mean what they're talking about is like the w you know the who the international monetary fund um you know things that are like the stitching together entities that tie everything together and make them work properly but the only reason they ever work at all is because you give them some of the sovereignty powers to dictate Mm -hmm. things for people um but like you either give them so little that they don't do anything or you give them enough to do something and then they're a world government mm. like <laughs> because they're governing the planet like they are yeah. doing governing <laughs> and then and then like you end up with 25 different entities that don't really talk to each other because like they're all separate structures and they don't have an overlying structure that mm. makes them coordinate so then you end up with these hideous inefficiencies because one of them does something well one of them isn't funded enough one of them doesn't talk to that one like that kind of thing but yeah and there's no one who's like a supervisor for the whole system to make the whole thing work together um so again pretty terrible argument um and we've seen what i think of the un um yeah so i mean (laughs) like i agree with you it's done more than nothing my problem with the UN is I think it gives people conspiracy fuel because it doesn't do anything uh, right. most of the time. And second, it gives people the illusion that we're doing something and that thus they don't do anything. That They're like, enough. it's like, oh, I don't need to do anything to help that. I don't need to worry about that because the UN's there. The UN's awesome. Um, whereas it's not really doing anything. So it kind of like passively destroys effort <laughs> at the same time <laughs> that it does argument, yeah. facilitate effort but it's like yeah it's the illusion of progress um i, I yeah. can't wait till our hundredth episode where we can just take out snippets of what daniel thinks of the un and make it. <laughs> <laughs> oh man i bet you could do like at least five episodes on my snippet <laughs> <laughs> it's like i said because I, I grew up thinking it was so cool and then like i go to i go to uni and learn about it and i kind of learn that all the really smart kids that want to work on this sort of stuff go and work at the un and then when they get there they can't do much and then they quit and go do something else and work for an ngo and it's like it's like it's like a 
passion vacuum. Like all these people that want to do things get sucked into it because it looks so great and then can't do anything because it's what it is. And then they sort of fall out the other end and don't know what to do with themselves. Whereas if they'd spent all that time trying to think of something more productive, they could have maybe made something up. I don't know. I don't know. It just it frustrates me. <laughs> As you can probably tell. Um, oh, man, it's sad. Because um, I know a lot of smart people in political science that just dreamed to go work for the UN. And I think a bunch of them did. Mm. Um, and they again, it's a facilitator, not not an actor unto itself. Um, anyway, yeah, that's the end of that. So my next my next episode is going to be sort of the rest of the um, the article because it's talking. This is sort of like the main critiques, and I sort of wanted to critique the critiques. Um, and then we'll go through the rest of it. So I'll read the rest and make notes and share them with you guys and then we'll go from there um so yeah that'll be next week so thanks for having um me ramble guys yay <laughs> thanks for rambling rambling i love rambling um <laughs> as you can tell uh so my name's been daniel i've been carla and i'm still shannon fantastic i'll see you all guys soon see you, you will